Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Uh, welcome back to Dark Poutine. Dark. It's darker poutine. Well, it's pretty dark. We're on the way to Quebec. Hello, Matthew Stockton. How are you? I am Mike Brown. We should do like Leonard Cohen's last album, So You Want It Darker. We should do like darker poutine. Oh, gosh. Like a second show. Darker like a poutine. second show, darker poutine where like they're, oh, gosh. I don't know if my soul could handle that. No, it's dark enough. Yeah, I don't. I don't <laughs> want to talk about darker. Like, I can't think of many darker things. We should do p poutine light, light poutine. Yeah, we should just like do like white collar crime, or, or just call it beaver tails. Beaver dark, tails. dark poutine's beaver tail. <gasps> uh oh, <laughs> Mike just got a. Yeah, huge... Matthew just saw the the light come on you, over the my head. Ding, literally, there was like ding. Oh no! Okay, hold on to that one. Yeah, put a pin in that. <laughs> Dark Poutine's Beaver Tales, copyright Dark Poutine Media Incorporated 2023. Lol. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate Global News, nor its parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We are not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. You are responsible for obtaining and maintaining at your own cost all equipment needed to listen to dark poutine. Dark poutine can be addictive. Side effects may include, but not be limited to, pausing and questioning the system, elevated heart rate, pondering humanity, odd looks from colleagues as you laugh out loud at work, family members not into true crime worrying about you. Positive side effects may include some perspectives and opinions that you disagree with, as well as some wokeness and empathy. If you don't think dark poutine is for you, consult your doctor immediately. After she'd been missing only a single day, on the evening of May 7, 2002, the body of 14-year-old Jessica Grimard was discovered by her father in a stream within a wooded area near her home in Rivière-des-Prairies, a suburban borough on the eastern tip of the city of Montreal. As her killer had placed Jessica in the water, washing away evidence, there was not much for the cops to go on. At first, police considered that Jessica had been killed by someone known to her. However, the case, thanks to a few strange twists, would head in a new direction, eventually leading to the capture of a known sexual predator and suspected serial killer who had bragged about his crimes. The boasting included confessions of responsibility for two other 1993 deaths around Montreal, initially ruled accidental, 
that of 12-year-old Christine Spike and 20-year-old Annalisa Kefali. The killer had used the elements of water and fire to cover his crimes. This is Dark Poutine episode 259, Twisted, the murders of Jessica Grimard, Christine Spike, and Annalisa Kefali. Montreal annexed the municipality of Rivière-des-Prairies in 1963. Originally settled by the Iroquois people who'd lived in the region for thousands of years, in 1687, French settlers established the parish of Rivière-des-Prairies, making it one of the earliest rural parishes on Montreal Island. The settlers in the region were served by a wooden church constructed the same year, which was later replaced by a stone church in 1711. That's a long time ago. Toward the west, a windmill was erected on a small piece of land at the end of Riviere de Prairie Rise, currently known as Riviere de Prairie Boulevard, in 1681. Its remnants are likely situated in the Moulin de Rapide Park. Two things. Okay. Do you want to hear something funny? Sure. So you mentioned the Iroquois. Yes. So I'm from, um, you know. Not far. An, a region. Right. The region, yeah. So when I went to Europe and there's like a rugby league called the Six Nations. Right. I'm like, from where I'm from, Six Nations is an Iroquois confederacy of okay. Six Nations. Yep. I go to Europe, I see Six Nations rugby, and I'm like, the Iroquois have a rugby team in Europe? <laughs> like, and it was the funniest thing until I realized, no, they actually mean six different countries in Europe. Sometimes you're you're ditzy to the point of fun. I know. Sometimes it's like, but it's shocking because generally I'm, I'm, you know, pretty on the ball. But when I'm, sure. when I'm ditzy, I'm really ditzy. Yeah, it's true. But I also, I'm feeling very Moulin Rouge here. Okay, Moulin about. Rouge. So windmills. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Windmills fascinate me. They do. So they were first introduced in Montreal in the late uh, 17th century. Yeah. For grinding stuff like wheat and corn, right? Right. And there's actually, uh, a, there was a really famous one on Montreal Island. Um, it was called the Pont à Calière, I think. Okay. Yeah. Um, but they gave way, windmills gave way to proper machinery over sure. time. Sure. I, I think windmills are beautiful, really. Except for the electric ones. Well, yeah, the, the there's the electric wind machines in Nova yeah. Scotia all along the huge. skyline. It's weird. Like my dad and they're I went massive, went to they? the one outside of Bridgewater and just like you stand outside the car and you can just listen to it go. Southwest Ontario has a whole bunch through fields. Yeah. I think it kind of makes everything ugly. Yeah, they're not pretty. No. But better than fossil fuel. Anyway, the signing of the Great Peace in 1701 put an end to what was perceived as the Iroquois threat. This led to the development of the colony. As a result, farmhouses began to appear on the banks of the Riviere de Prairie, including the Christen de Saint Armour House, which dates back to around 1732, and it's the oldest standing house in the area. During the 18th and 19th centuries, a small village emerged quietly along the public road known as Guam Boulevard. The village was centered around the parish church and consisted of seven houses in 1781. And today, rare examples of those village houses from the early days of the village still exist. In the first half of the 20th century, the rural setting and the banks of Riviere de Prairie attracted holidaymakers. Several chalets and villas were built along Guam Boulevard or parallel streets specifically for this purpose. 
Now today, Riviere de Prairie has a population of approximately 100,000 people and covers an area of 28.6 kilometers. The borough's namesake, Riviere de Prairie, borders the community to the north, the borough of Anjou to the south, the city of Repentnier to the east, I'm so terrible with French names, and the borough of Montreal Nord to the west. Riviere de Prairie has a strong community spirit and hosts several annual events such as the Fête Nationale de Québec, Canada Day celebrations, and the Christmas Parade. The borough is well served by public transportation, which includes several bus routes and two metro stations along the Green Line. It is a nice place and considered a safe place to live. In May of 2002, Jessica Grimard, 14, lived there with her family, her parents, and two sisters on Eugene Couvrette Street in the district of Pointe-aux-Trembles within the Riviere de Prairie borough. Jessica was a well-liked 8th grade student at Gru High School, and like many girls her age, she was active and social. Jessica loved fashion, playing volleyball, and chumming with her pals. She enjoyed listening to music and loved to dance. She was the type of girl who was always willing to lend a hand if someone needed help. I bet she was wearing cargo pants and platform boots. Probably. Back in 2002. Yeah, those remember, were remember all, that? Yeah. They were all the rage. All the rage. And just a kid living her life. Sure. Sources indicate that Jessica had walked her friend to a nearby bus stop on the evening of May 6th, 2002. She never returned home. According to newspaper reports, when Jessica didn't attend school on May 7th, the school notified Jessica's parents, who were beside themselves with worry. Jessica's dad, Eve, later said that on learning his daughter was missing, he'd had a premonition that young Jessica was somewhere near the water. Family and friends, including Eve, set out looking for the missing girl. Can you imagine your kids missing? No. I try to really put myself into parents' shoes when... We do episodes like this. Did it ever happen in your neighborhood that somebody went missing? Um, yeah, a few times, but they're usually, they were, well, bah, bah, bah. I mean, there were murders. Remember, I did, sure. when I was a baby, you know. But I, anyone we, you we knew the is what I'm, what I'm. Did anyone go missing? No, people like ran away and took off sometimes, but not proper missing. So when I was young, uh, probably it would, would have been in the late 70s, a girl who lived two houses away, I'm not going to say her name, disappeared, didn't come home for dinner. Mm. And I remember all the fathers... Searching. Searching, going out and searching for her. Did they find her? She ended up having... She went to a friend's house and just forgot to call home and say I wouldn't be home for dinner. But the entire neighborhood... The entire neighborhood banded together and went looking for her. I mean, there was a lot of wooded area around where we lived. Uh, I remember my dad was driving around while her father was uh, out looking in the woods. Wow. And it was horrible. It was horrible, and it was like three or four hours of horror in that neighborhood. Uh, I I don't think I'll ever forget that. She probably got a scolding or a massive hug or both. She probably got a good yelling at, but they were very glad but that also, she was okay. Also a big hug. <laughs> yeah, she was absolutely fine. Yeah, good. And and I I this story obviously doesn't turn out like that. No. It was just after dark that evening when just a block away, a number of meters from the family home, in a stream within a wooded area between 87th Avenue and Armand Chaput Avenue, Eve made a horrible discovery. One of his daughter's shoes lying in the mud. He walked a bit further up the stream, and his premonition was confirmed. There lay Jessica face down in the water, 
She was fully clothed but clearly deceased. Jessica's throat had been cut so deeply that some of the cuts had gone almost to her spine. She'd been stabbed as well. A later autopsy indicated 25 wounds, nine of which were defensive wounds. Jessica had fought for her life. Her skin was white as she'd been laying there long enough that gravity and the moving water had washed away all her blood. Montreal police quickly cordoned off the area and began to work the scene. The area was a well-known hangout for neighborhood kids, so investigators had to sort through the items discovered there to determine what was relevant to Jessica's murder. They used metal detectors to sweep the area, looking for items that might belong to Jessica or her killer, especially the murder weapon, determined to have been a knife. They didn't find a knife, but they did find Jessica's house keys, earrings, and some other personal belongings. Although Jessica had been found in the water, police discovered bloodstains on the ground, branches, and leaves of the nearby foliage. This indicated, perhaps, that Jessica had been murdered away from the water and dragged there after the murder, presumably to get rid of the evidence of the crime. This also may have been an indication of a sophisticated perpetrator. Under Jessica's three layers of clothing on the top of her body, police found leaves matching those near where they surmised the murder scene was. Had her killer made her redress after a possible sexual assault? Pathologists were unable to conclude that a sexual assault had taken place. There was no DNA belonging to anyone else apparent on, in, or around Jessica's body. If there had been, the time Jessica's body had spent in the water had washed it all away. DNA has made crime solving so much easier. Uh, if you, if it's, you, a, it's a great tool. If yeah. you have it, right? If you have it, mm -hmm. it's a great tool. Mm -hmm. And to not have DNA, so often we hear, okay, DNA, and then the person was caught, right? Yeah. Because often these people, you know, they're on a DNA database. But this is starting to sound like it's going to be a very difficult case to figure out. Eve had been terribly traumatized by what he'd seen there in the stream. Just a brief walk from the family home. The community rallied around the Grimard family to support them. Can you imagine? Mm. You're this young girl's father. Mm. You have a premonition when you find that she's missing. And then you find her in the water. And then you find her exactly where your premonition I wonder, I wonder where that feeling came from. I don't know. I don't know. But, uh, and I looked at the map of where she was found. It wasn't very far, was it? No, it was like within sight of her home. So close to home. Within sight. A memorial gathering was held for Jessica Grimard at a funeral complex in Pointe-aux-Tremblay. Family members and several hundred friends attended the service. The media was not welcome inside to view the private ceremony. According to the Montreal Gazette, following the ceremony's conclusion, mourners exited the Alfred Dallaire Funeral Home on Sherbrooke Street East to release a cloud of blue balloons in memory of Jessica. As her favorite dance music played from a car stereo, many mourners watched in tears, cheering until the balloons disappeared from sight. Jessica's body was later cremated. According to the Canadian press, quote, It's more than sad, said the teen's grandfather Roger Grimard. This is a murder of a 14-year-old girl who didn't deserve to die. She was an affable, loving, affectionate girl, always surrounded by friends. Just ask anyone, he said, bursting into tears. I can't believe she's gone. The poor man. Yeah. Grandpa. Not only should not a parent outlive a child, 
but our grandparent outliving their grandchildren. That is that's it. And oh. this and this is what happens, right? We these stories we we often cover obviously what what the immediate family said, but the ripple effect is huge. It, like it goes to grandparents. It goes to brothers and sisters, friends, the community. Yeah. Right? It's not just one life like one life's taken, but it affects so many. Mm -hmm. And something like a murder, it's not just to death. It takes away a level of feeling of safety, safety and yeah. trust. Mm -hmm. right? The Gazette article continued by noting that Jessica's friends and family had made a memorial with flowers left at the spot where her body was discovered. Jessica's neighbors, family, and friends provided all they could to police investigators about Jessica's movements the day before her father found her body. Still, nothing seemed to lead to any viable suspects. The attack on the innocent girl had been brutal and violent, a seemingly emotionally motivated attack. At first, police believed the perpetrator might have been someone known by the teen, perhaps someone she'd rejected and then been murdered for it. As we mentioned before, Jessica was kind and friendly. She had no known enemies, and she did not have a boyfriend. Police worked every lead they could into the fall of 2002. They were thwarted at every line of inquiry. It began to dawn on investigators that it had been a stranger who'd killed Jessica, perhaps a random victim of opportunity at the hands of an unknown serial killer. A strange set of events led investigators to arrest a known sex offender named Angelo Colalillo in October. Initially, in relation to another attempted sexual assault, a corrections guard doing a routine check of correspondence came across a disturbing letter addressed to an inmate named Nick Pacione. He'd been incarcerated for an indefinite sentence after being designated as a dangerous offender in 2000 when he was 33 years old. And Pacione has a long record of nasty behavior. His first convictions as an adult were concerning. In 1987, at 18, he was convicted of burglary and possession of a weapon and fined $125. In 1988, after a conviction for possession of a weapon, he was put on probation for two years and fined $150. But it was his sexual crimes that were most concerning. According to court documents, Pacione had been driven by his desire for sex since he was 12. As early as his teen years, he began a secret life centered on sex, abandoning any other activity for all practical purposes. He abandoned school and his friends, and the money earned at work allowed him to buy porn magazines and attend peep shows. From the age of 14, he prostituted himself to older men and subsequently devoted himself to voyeurism and exhibitionism. In 1990, he received a sentence of four years in prison following several violent sexual assaults on girls aged 10 to 20 using a starting revolver or a knife. The attacks took place either on the street or in homes, and he'd attempted to sexually assault a 10-year-old girl while pointing a revolver at her head. In another case, he'd forced a 15-year-old to perform oral sex on him while pointing a revolver at her head. This guy is a real scumbag. Yeah, this is the type of person who should be in jail forever. Just, Do not pass go. He's just disgusting. Yeah, the epitome of dangerous offender. While in detention for the first time for sexual offenses, Pacioni learned quickly to play the system and agreed to undertake sex offender therapy. As a result, he obtained day parole. He continued therapy for several months, but during this period, he reoffended in the same kind of crime for which he had been caught and convicted. 
He received consecutive sentences of three years for three armed sexual assaults and kidnapping. He then refused any further treatment while he was in prison this time. His behavior seemed worse, especially with the female corrections staff. From court documents, shortly before his mandatory release, he'd struck up a correspondence with a 14-year-old whose contact details he obtained from a magazine. Pachion wrote the teen long letters stating his sexual fantasies and demonstrating extreme perversity. To that point, he'd served his full sentence of seven years with any parole or mandatory supervision being denied him. A psychiatrist who'd been treating Pachion came forward and estimated the man would reoffend days after his release. Arrangements were made for police to surveil Pachion for a period of one month. As the doctor had predicted, he went right back to his old habits. The cops regularly saw Pachion entering peep shows, leafing through pornographic magazines, and ominously, on two occasions, they'd seen him following young girls in the street. A little later, Pachion met a young woman at work and learned that an apartment next to hers was for rent. He moved in and managed to have some contact with her. When she was not at home, Pachion entered her house at least twice and searched her intimate belongings, which aroused him sexually. While still inside the apartment on one occasion, the girl arrived home, surprised to see her colleague and neighbor inside her house. The girl panicked and began to scream, so Pachion put one hand over her mouth and the other around her neck and tried to drag her into the living room. She later said she felt like she was being strangled. She had difficulty breathing, struggled, but managed to get to her door to scream enough to alert the neighbors who ran to the rescue. Pachion was witnessed leaving the scene and running away. He was arrested the next day. It was during this time that the Crown, out of concern for the public upon Pachion's release, then sought to designate him as a dangerous offender. As part of the proceedings, another psychiatrist, Dr. John Wolwerts, produced a report and testified during the hearing. The doctor said that he considered Pachion the most dangerous person among those he'd ever evaluated. The doctor felt Pachion's only interest was his drive for deviant sex, and he was not ready to change. Translated from French, the doctor wrote in part, quote, He carries with him a plastic bag containing pornographic material to consume, support stimulation, get excited like a drug addict, a cap, sunglasses, to dress up, and a gun to scare. He describes himself as a sex addict, and it is the world into which he escapes, the escape in his life while he goes from one thrill to another. This excitement gives the experience a special power. His sexual deviance allows him a secret life, isolation, and power. He is, he says, proud of himself, and I quote, I am proud of myself. He tells stories of his deviant sexual exploits with a certain narcissism. He also allows himself to say, quote, My sexual addiction is the biggest part of myself. He has very few positive things to report on his own. He flaunts his sexual fantasies and deviant acts that have occupied almost all his life. Speaking of his inadequate sexual actions, he tells us, I do like myself. Moreover, he has a feeling of satisfaction, omnipotence, and domination when he holds his victim at the end of his revolver and asks them to submit to his low instincts. When it comes to his life outside of his crimes, he said that he feels bad, uncomfortable, and a failure. The doctor further opined, 
Trying to take away this only psychic comfort by imposing therapy for sexual offenders is like destroying the fragile architecture of his personality. He cannot let go of what gives him an impression of solidity. End quote. The bid to designate Pacione as a dangerous offender was ultimately successful. However, while behind bars, he could communicate with other sexual deviants like himself. So this kept his fantasies alive. One of those he met and shared stories with while incarcerated was a man named Angelo Colalillo, another convicted rapist. Once he'd served his time for the sexual assault for which he'd been convicted, Colalillo kept up correspondence with Pacione via letter writing, sending his pal on the inside many pages of what he called fantasies. It was a routine check of Pacione's mail by a corrections guard that led to a mountain of disturbing notes and pornographic images shared between the two predators. These letters would eventually lead to Angelo Colalillo being the one and only suspect in Jessica Grimard's murder. More after a quick break. And we are back. Matthew, thoughts? Yeah, we've, di we've just heard a lot about how he considers himself a sex addict. Yeah. Right? But I think it's important to point out that rape is a violent crime and it's not about sex, it's about power and control. Yeah. Right? Um, and... Uh, yeah, and we're talking about uh, Pachione here. Yeah, 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 and it's... Um, yeah, no wonder he's found a dangerous offender. You know, every time we do an episode, I think you're going to introduce me to the most odious character I've ever met. Sure. And then you trump yourself. Right. Right? Mm -hmm. And this is my new least favorite <laughs> person. Well, there's another least favorite person that we're about to learn about. Oh, great. And his name is Angelo Colalillo. According to a documentary on Jessica's murder, a corrections officer discovered a letter with a pornographic photo of a young girl inside an envelope addressed to Nick Pacione. Special permission was granted to further monitor Pacione's mail inside the institution. All mail to Pacione was opened and photocopied before being forwarded to the inmate. Subsequently, more disturbing correspondence was intercepted and analyzed by a member of the sexual assault unit. Some of the letters outlined what appeared at first to be a horrendous exercise in creative writing. The subject, typically, was sadistic and violent sexual assault of young girls and women, presumably for the sexual stimulation and gratification of the predator, Nick Pacione, behind bars. When the stories were too fantastical to be true, the author of the concerning letters usually called himself Angelo, Frankie, or Frank, and wrote in the first person. However, some stories stood out especially as they were written in the third person, calling himself Bob, and seemed to ring true. The analyst began comparing details from the Bob letters to police reports from actual unsolved cases. One name used in the story was that of a victim of a sexual assault that had taken place in July of 2002 in Riviere de Prairie. The survivor of that attack had reported that she'd been waiting at a bus stop on a rainy evening. A man had approached the woman, chatting about the bad weather. He said his car was nearby and offered her a ride. She accepted. The woman followed the man to his car, a light-colored American-made vehicle, a Malibu. The man was polite at first, even opening the car door for the woman. But once they were both inside the car, the man's demeanor changed. The man began touching the woman's breasts and thighs without consent. He then proceeded to attempt to gain control of the woman and tried to tie her up. 
However, the woman was able to flee the vehicle and ran off, leaving her purse and other personal items behind. The car sped off into the darkness. The woman had not been able to obtain a view of the license plate of the vehicle, but she was able to give a bit of a description of that and the man. Sadly, it wasn't enough for the creation of a composite drawing. This Bob letter had described the date and the weather at the time of the crime accurately. The Bob letter had a return address but no real name. Investigators went to the address and looked at the cars parked nearby, eventually discovering one matching the description of the car used in the July sexual assault. The license plate on the car indicated that it belonged to a 38-year-old cellular phone salesman named Angelo Colalillo. Colalillo's disturbing history of sexual assault stood out right away. He once served an 11-year sentence after he pleaded guilty to three counts each of forcible confinement and assaulting a peace officer in 1987 and went back to jail while on parole for rape in 1993. The home at which the car was parked belonged to Cola Lillo's parents, where he'd been living since he'd gotten out of jail the last time. In jail, of course, he'd met Nick Pacione, and they'd presumably struck up their twisted friendship based on their shared depravities. The victim of the July assault was shown a photo lineup from which she immediately identified Angelo Cololillo as her attacker. While awaiting arrest and search warrants for Angelo Cololillo and his home, police kept the suspected rapist under surveillance to ensure there were no further victims. They followed his every move, becoming concerned as he drove around the area, seemingly without aim. He would drive around for a while and then just park and sit in his car, seat leaned back, on random residential streets for 10 or 20 minutes before driving some distance and parking on another street. It seemed to the experienced officers that the man with a previous history of sexual assault was hunting for a fresh target. Cops were relieved when the warrants came through. A cohort of armed officers cautiously arrested Angelo Colalillo, who they later noted was disturbingly cold and calm as they took him into custody. Found inside Colalillo's home, were items belonging to the July 2002 bus stop victim, as well as copies of letters written to Nick Pacione. There were other disturbing notes, still unfinished, found on Colalillo's computer, and other letters written by Nick Pacione in response to Angelo's notes. Officers also discovered a bag containing what they believed to be Colalillo's rape kit. A search of Nick Pacione's cell was undertaken and revealed many more letters, more than 300 at least 30 of which were later proven to be written by Angelo Colalillo. Some of the letters attributed to Angelo Colalillo were signed under the Frankie or Frank aliases. Some were signed as Bob, and others were signed Angelo. Investigators began pouring through the communications to determine whether these letters matched other outstanding unsolved crimes on file. Court documents revealed some highlights from the communications in question. Letter 1 dated September 10, 2001, is the only letter which shows on the letterhead the full name and address of Colalillo. It is signed Angelo. Meanwhile, as cops poured through the correspondence, Colalillo sat in jail awaiting prosecution for the July assault. Perhaps some part of him wanted to be stopped, as even behind bars, Angelo Colalillo could not keep quiet. He began talking incessantly to his cellmate, a man who'd been charged with murder. 
During a polygraph examination, it came out that Colalillo had admitted to the rape and murder of a young girl in Riviere de Prairie whose throat had been slashed. Colalillo, the man claimed, said he had later placed her in a stream to wash away evidence. Homicide investigators spoke with the man the next day, and they were given details only the actual killer would have had. Over the next few months, in the darkness of their cell at night, Colalillo's cellmate, disgusted by what he was hearing, secretly made notes as Colalillo ranted, laughed, and bragged about Jessica's murder, as well as his other crimes. The informer would then pass along his notes, including hand-drawn maps of the crime scene to investigators building the case against Angelo Colalillo. Among the communications between Colalillo and Pachione, investigators discovered disturbing fantasies and admissions of rape and murder. Months before Jessica's murder, Colalillo made brief reference to having, quote, already done the snuff thing before. In 1993, prior to one of his convictions and subsequent incarceration then, throughout the letters, he admitted that he liked to watch crime dramas, particularly CSI, to get ideas about covering his tracks. He also talked about his M.O., disguises he'd use, often a baseball cap to cover his balding head, and the tools he preferred to use for his depraved crimes. These guys are morons. At least, you know, we're lucky that um, they're writing about this. Yeah, and they and he went into detail <sighs> about what he had done. Bragging. Bragging, calling himself different names and hoping that would, you know, s throw people off the trail. <laughs> what a tool. Angelo wrote that he liked to find young girls at home alone. He'd use a ruse to get through their door. Sometimes he'd pretend to be someone innocuous, a repairman, or a flower delivery person. Once in the home, he'd ask to use the washroom, plop something into the toilet to cause it to foam up, and then call his target in to see the, quote, problem he'd created. Once in the enclosed space, Colalillo would overpower them and rape them. On at least two occasions, the ones in which girls had died, he claimed he'd strangled his victims almost to the point of death, ensuring they were still breathing when he set fire to their home to cover up the evidence of his crime. He called this the, quote, fire exit. He said he'd used it twice in 1993. He wrote, quote, I don't want her body found, no witnesses, no crime, and later, then torch the place, leave no evidence or fingerprints or whatever. It'd look like they all died in the overnight fire, electrical failure. From court documents, letter 13, dated May 2, 2002, five days before Jessica Grimard's murder, describes the assault on a young girl and how Colalillo had gained access to the home. He adds that he made the victim clean up, quote, remove all the evidence, saliva, sperm, hair, skin cells, etc., all my DNA from the scene of the crime. And then he did his, quote, thing. Once finished, quote, I asked her where her room was, brought her there, and then did my thing. I left about 20 minutes later. She wouldn't be talking to anyone about this incident. The letter is signed Frank and was referring to a murder in 1993. Cola Lillo claimed to be, quote, getting the itch to do it again. In letter 14, May 5th, 2002, quote, I scratched a little itch two weeks ago. Damn, now I want to scratch more. It's like a drug, isn't it? But I'd like some fruit that's more ripe for the second one. End quote. This letter is dated one day before the assault on Jessica Grimard. The incident two weeks previous refers to a sexual assault on a girl who is indeed younger than Grimard. 
This letter is also signed Angelo, and that girl was 11 years old. There was a brief break in communication after Jessica's murder on May 6, 2002. A letter dated May 15th and 16th, 2002, just over a week after Jessica's murder, starts with the comment, I think I screwed up big time. I left a witness and some prints. It is written in the first person and signed Frankie. So this guy's been bragging about how careful he is mm -hmm. and in doing so creating evidence by writing it down. <laughs> that's, a, that's a real special kind of criminal, isn't it? Yeah. Right? I'm going to write down everything I've done and just so I can show on, on how careful I've been and how I'm not going to get caught. A letter written 10 days after the discovery of Jessica's body alluded to the crime under Colalillo's Bob alias. In letter 16, dated May 17, 2002, the author refers to the murder of Jessica Grimard for the first time in the third person as Bob and adds on page 14, quote, He left a victim, a body, something he wasn't used to doing. Not in this sense, anyways. This was a pure crime scene. The others he would leave behind, he made them look like accidents. So there was never a criminal investigation involved. But this one would be different. There would definitely be an investigation into this one. End quote. In letter 17, dated May 26, 2002, the author says the following, quote, I've been keeping an eye on the news and checking to see if there are any new developments in the case, end quote. The author specifically talks about pleading guilty to crimes in 1987 and 1993, and these coincide with Cola Lillo's convictions. And he also wonders whether the police, as a result, have his DNA on file. The letter also refers to the fact that another sexual offender, known to them, was labeled a dangerous offender. Birds of a feather flock together. And that letter is signed Frankie. Cola Lillo's confessions in the letters and to his cellmates painted a terrible tale. He indicated that he had spotted Jessica walking and had dragged her into the woods at knife point, where he made her undress and sexually assaulted her. Before forcing her to get dressed again, he made her clean up in the stream, telling her he would let her go. This explains the leaves under her clothing. But once she'd put on all her clothes, Cola Lillo slashed her throat and stabbed the girl repeatedly, leaving her in the mud. He'd return to the crime scene later, at least twice over the next few hours, at one point dragging Jessica into the stream to wash away evidence. There has been little written about the two previous 1993 murders police uncovered and now attributed to Cola Lillo, as he was successful at the time in his bid to make them look like accidents. The first to die had been 12-year-old Christine Spike in February of 1993. Her body was found in her bedroom after a fire in the family home, initially determined accidental due to faulty wiring. It was believed she died in the fire. However, Cola Lillo's letters revealed that he'd raped Christine, strangled her unconscious, and set fire to cover his tracks. She'd been home alone to sleep after being up late the night before working on a school project. Cola Lillo had talked his way into the home using one of his ruses. So this family who yeah. thought they lost their daughter years before yep. is going to find out that there's a stranger in the house who murdered her and set the house on fire. Yep. Like all these, all those years later, they have to like have this trauma come up again. And there's, there's another one right after it. Later that same year, 20-year-old Anna Lisa Kefali was found in her home after there had been a fire. 
Her death was ruled a suicide Ugh. at the time. However, once again, Cola Lillo's letters to Pacione told the true tale of what had occurred. He'd raped her, killed her, and set the house on fire. Interestingly, Kefali had known Cola Lillo, and according to the Montreal Gazette, she'd had an appointment to meet him that morning to discuss becoming his secretary. Oh my God. Right? Like, so he could have been caught in 1993. Could have been. I don't know if they even talked to him mm. because, you know, it was ruled a suicide at that yeah. point. Horrible. So all that time her family thought she, she died by suicide. Yes. And then and she had to carry that for a number of years, then come to terms with that the way you do. And then, oh, now I have to completely reframe all of that thinking and all of that pain for years. Yeah. Suicide tends to go with it for survivors. Guilt. A yeah. lot of guilt. Did I say something wrong that caused that person to do those things? You know, whether right or wrong, that's the way people think. And then years later, you're absolved of that, but you've learned that a horrible person actually killed your child yeah, I've, and burned the house. I've known a few people who died by suicide. Yeah, me too. So I kind of, hey, if I was a better friend, would it have happened, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. As well as other sexual assaults, there was another strange alleged plot uncovered in the correspondence between the two monsters. A former probation officer was implicated in a plot cooked up in letters between Cola Lillo and Pacione. Cola Lillo was tasked to sexually assault someone against whom the female probation officer had a grudge. She was charged but acquitted as no crime had taken place, and the trial judge had agreed with the defense's position that these were merely fantasies. The police were correct about their hunches when surveilling Cola Lillo before his arrest. His correspondent indicated he was, in fact, on the hunt again. In early 2003, Angelo Colalillo was charged with the murders of Jessica Grimard, Christine Spike, and Anna Lisa Cafali, and two other sexual assaults. He was held for trial, but it never happened. Angelo Colalillo's trial was supposed to begin on Monday, January 9, 2006. However, Colalillo, then 41, was discovered unconscious in his cell at Riviere de Prairie Prison, Saturday, January 7, 2006. He died at 6.30 a.m. days later in the Santa Cabrini Hospital after spending the weekend in intensive care. Somehow, Angelo had hoarded a number of pills with which he had then completed suicide. The families of two of the murdered girls spoke out after Angelo Colalillo's death, giving their reactions to the press. From the Montreal Gazette, quote, It's the best thing. God took the right decision, said Eve Grimard, who discovered his daughter Jessica's violated body in a wooded area within view of their home in May 2002. He said his wife was disappointed Cola Lillo would not be brought to justice and hopefully found guilty by the jury in a matter of weeks, but Grimard said he personally was at peace with the accused killer's demise. He, Cola Lillo, took a life, so God took his life. Grimard reasoned. I fall on the side uh, of his wife here mm -hmm. in that I would want a sense of completion and closure yeah. and rather have him in jail sure. than taking an easy way out. But at the same time, this the, he's completely in his right to feel the way he needs to feel about the killer who killed his daughter. Sure. Right? Hans Spike, who had been grappling with his daughter Christina's death for more than a decade, said Cola Lillo got what he deserved. And this is the article continuing. Okay. Spike confessed that 
learning nine years after his daughter's death that she had been cruelly murdered by a serial predator, has turned him into a proponent of the death penalty. It's the sentence we were asking for, he said. We're really relieved that that's what happened today. Christine's mother, Lucy Spike, said Kololilo's passing brought her comfort also. This morning, when we heard the news, we were relieved the whole thing was over, and we can get on with our lives, she said. It's been a rough time for our family, but life has to go on now. Life has to go on now. Yeah, so it's kind of like there is some closure in that yeah. person's demise. Yeah. Um, because they don't have to deal with that. They're, they're gone, so they, yeah. don't even, they don't have to... Like, there's something to be said for that. They don't have to think of them being in the cell and what they're doing and... They still have to deal with their own get out emotions around yeah. it. But, yeah. But what she's saying is, ah, oh, you know... If you love somebody so much, mm -hmm. right, and they 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 die, mm -hmm. you you have you still have to go on, yeah, right. And and a lot of people, um, it's tough for them. Yeah, tough is uh, beyond an understatement. Lastly, letters between the two predators, Pachione and Colalillo, had expressed their fantasies about breaking Pachione out of jail so they could commit rapes and murders together, even referring to Paul Bernardo and his partner, Carla Homolka. Who knows what horrific events might have occurred had Colalillo not been caught. Pachione's parole eligibility was later pushed back after he was convicted of counseling Colalillo to commit more murders that did not occur. Pachione was denied parole in 2021 who, you know, we learned about very early in the episode, is never going to see the light of day. Mm. Yeah. What, what an awful dude. Horrible. Two awful dudes. Who've met each other. Right. It, it's like, and they also referenced another dangerous offender in their like, letters. In so their, it's like birds of little, a feather. little club. Yeah, it's like a little creep club. Ugh. Yuck. And that's it for Dark Poutine episode 259, Twisted, The Murders of Jessica Grimard, Christine Spike, and Annalisa Cafali. That's right, it's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at 1-877-327-5786 or 1-877-DARK-PTN. We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. Voicemail time. Voicemails. Uh, let's listen to our first one and see what they have to say today. Hello, Mike. Hello, Matthew. This is Annie checking in from Manitoba again. I am your city planner and I am your gin boot digger. I would accept any additional <laughs> title to those. On the episode considering Brigitte Grenier, you referenced Miami, Manitoba, and about how disappointed that would be to be sent there thinking it was Miami, Florida on a college scholarship. Because I am slowly becoming the person who gives anecdotes about Winnipeg and the province of Manitoba <laughs> in general, I'm going to continue that track to chime in about another fun fact about my geography, which I hope is relevant to your amazing podcast. In 1995, there was a Winnipeg radio station that held a contest to win tickets to see the Super Bowl in Miami. It was a prank where the winners were shipped to watch the Super Bowl on a TV in a dive bar in Miami, Manitoba. It didn't go over well. Thanks for your great content. Keep up the great work, and I hope to hear more from you soon. 
Yeah, Matthew mentioned something sort of like that, but it was <laughs> it had happened. Yeah, what a horrible thing. I'm not even interested in sports. I just try to get the free trip to Miami. I would have been really upset. <laughs> it's like Matthew and Justin all wearing your shorts. And he's a journalist again. Yeah, yeah, she's great. <laughs> she's a journalist. Yeah. So today she's a journalist. Okay. Uh, and she, um, she is about to foist a spectacular mm -hmm. about um, some politicians here in Canada. Oh, I can't wait. Yeah, it's it, it's it's going to be a gate. Well, what, yeah, it's like Canada like gate. Yeah, Poutine gate. It's going to be Poutine gate. I We've already you. kind of had a Poutine gate. She's got gate. the scoop. She's got the scoop. <laughs> okay. Well, call us, Annie, when it's, Poutine gate drops. Yeah, give us, well, just give us like, like... 12 hours, 24 hour notice. So we can like be the first to break. It. Exactly. Anyway, here's our next voicemail. Hi, Mike and Matthew. My name is Rebecca and I am a research scientist living in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. I just listened to episode 256, the killing of Colton Bushi. And I just wanted to commend you guys on doing a really great job. I am from a farm near the area. And I also was a writer for the local campus newspaper at the university of Saskatchewan while the trial was unfolding. I wrote an article on the trial verdict and attended the Justice for Colton rallies that were held in the community. All of that to say, I thought your coverage was fair and compassionate. I loved when you referred to Colton as a 22-year-old boy because I completely agree with that assessment. We all did some really dumb shit in our early 20s. I also really appreciated your inclusion of Debbie Baptiste, Colton's mother, and how she was treated by RCMP. It is unacceptable and needs more attention in this case. Colton's family are still vocal in our community to this day, and we are still fighting for justice. Again, thank you for an excellent episode. Love all that you do. Go poop in your toque. Thanks. <laughs> A research scientist just told me to go poop in my I toque. I love it. Uh, my cousin Rob was a research scientist at the University of Saskatchewan for a time. He's back in Nova Scotia now, uh, but he... Uh, was involved, he has a PhD in biology mm -hmm. and was involved in coming up with a more hardy winter wheat. Okay. Yeah. So that was kind of his jam. And he's always like, uh, he said that, uh, he couldn't come to a party that dad was having because he had to water the plants, but that, <laughs> that's cause it's his job. But he literally had to do it. Yeah. He had to water the plants. But anyway, so thank you so much that I really appreciate that. It, this case, uh, the Colton Bushy case that uh, you're talking about, we know it's, it was a tough one that I'd avoided because I didn't really feel ready to talk about it. Um, I didn't feel I was educated enough. So, um, that's why it took so long for me to get around to it. But I'm, I'm really glad that, uh, it came across the way we'd intended. Yeah. I think I, I think Colton would have been a cool dude. Sure. Uh, to meet. So yeah, we, we did have a few more voicemails, but they were all about <laughs> About the Super Bowl in Miami. In Miami. <laughs> Literally three calls. Yeah, it's like, oh my gosh. Too that fun. was really funny. Anyway, thanks for your voicemails, folks. We love you. On to Patreon. That's it for this week's voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at 1-877-327-5786 or 1-877-DARKPTN. We'd love to hear from you even if it is just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats. If you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a quick story is welcome. So first up, as far as patrons go, we have Summer Huell, and she's from 
Langley, British Columbia, a neighbor. I love it when the neighbors uh, drop in with a little uh, patronage. Good old Langley. And what does Summer Huell do there in Langley, BC, Matthew? Summer is a lifeguard. Okay. What a great thing for somebody whose name is Summer, even though it's Summer with an O. Okay. But Midsummer. Midsummer. Yeah. Well, that's a that's a fun movie. Have you seen that? We watched that movie. Yeah. It ends. Yep. My husband and my stepfather are sitting on the sofa. Yep. There's silence. Yep. And my stepfather goes with his northern British accent. What the fuck did we just watch? <laughs> <laughs> It is pretty psychedelic. Anyway, Summer is a lifeguard. So she's a lifeguard. Yep. And um, is it like a lifeguard on a lake, a pool? Is Langley on the ocean? No. It's on the ocean. <laughs> she's a lifeguard on the ocean. Okay, there you go. <laughs> well, great. Thank you, Summer. Thanks, Summer. And next we have Becky Maves. And Becky is from Welland, Ontario. Welland. Oh, do you know where Welland is, Matthew? I certainly do. Is that close to where you grew up? Yeah, not far. Not far? Everything's kind of close. Yeah, true. And uh, what does Becky do there in Welland? She's a firefighter. Oh, good for her. Yep. Yeah. Uh, a guy who used to teach me firefighting in the junior fire department just passed away. Oh, I'm he sorry. He was a bit of a mentor. Uh, I remember him, uh, Robert Winters, my friend. Uh, Chris just posted about it. He's still sort of involved in that world, so. I have a, I have a theory about firefighters. Oh, yeah? For the boys. Okay. You take a seven, you put him in a firefighter's outfit, and he's a ten. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, I, I used to like wearing the bunker gear. It always smelled the same way. Little, yeah, it smelled funny, but it, uh, I don't know. It was hot. What was that stuff we used to put on our boots when we were kids? That mink oil. Yes. Do you remember? Was it actually? You've from, talked about that. Was on the it show. from minks? Have I spoken about that? Yes. Yeah, I think it was from just minks. the smell of the uniform. I, th I thought for some reason when you're saying that, I'm like, I bet you it smells like mink oil. No, it was rubbery. Okay. Yeah, rubbery and musty. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, uh, thank you, Becky, for your service. That sounds like one of my good Saturday nights. Right. Exactly. Uh, anyway. Uh, let's move along. Thanks to all our patrons and Donut Money donors past and present for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us Donut Money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you haven't gotten yours yet, my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available to order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of darkpoutine.com, please check it out for show notes and other cool stuff. We'd appreciate it if you took the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening, and tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. And that's it for this episode of Dark Poutine. Is that all? It is all. Oh. Don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. See y'all later. Bye. Bye.